News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk about Nobel Prizes this morning. This year's winners have included the scientists behind the mRNA vaccine technology, the discoverers of quantum dots. These are the smallest kind of nanoparticles, which scientists didn't even know existed. I mean, some amazing discoveries. Also, I love the history behind some of the winners. For instance, back in 1943, the person who won the Nobel Prize in chemistry actually began the journey for their groundbreaking discovery because they were sure they were being fed leftover food at their boarding house cafeteria. It turns out the landlordy, landlady was using leftover meat ew, and disguising it as new food. Meanwhile, George Havesi used his experiment with radioactive materials to figure that out and then later on expanded on it, went on to win the Nobel Prize. So you see, the news about Nobel Prize winners is maybe out there and you think, oh, you read the headline, but what is, how does it really impact me? Well, the work does continue to impact us years later. Joining us now to talk more about this is Dr. Artemis Spiru, who's a professor of physics at the Facility for Rare Isotope Beams at Michigan State University. Dr. Spiru, thank you for being with us. Hi, thank you very much for having me. So tell me, about the, we were talking about the Nobel Prize winner from back in 1943 for chemistry. Now, what was so significant about that work that we're still using it years later? Yeah, so the, the work was using uh, isotopes in general, but specifically radioactive isotopes as tracers. So tracers are something that you can use to, to track what's going on. Uh, as an example, let's say you have a, a group of kindergartners going on a field trip and you want to know what, what they're doing, but you're not there. Maybe one of them has a smartphone or a smart smartwatch. And if you're tracking the GPS of that one smartwatch, then you can know where the group is going. So the radioactive tracers work something like that. The, you, you use them to track normal processes, uh, but you put something that you can detect, that you can track along the way. So things like this we use every day. I think the most impactful thing we do today is in medicine. We use radioactive uh, tracers and radioactive uh, isotopes to track disease and detect disease without the need of having invasive procedures. And so that all got started because the 1943 winner thought that he needed to investigate what kind of food he was being fed. Is that it? Well, it, it, it's a funny story, and I don't know that that's where it it definitely started, but uh, the Hevesy was working with radioactivity, and he was getting this idea of using radioactivity as a tracer. But yeah, that's where he, he used it, I guess, for the first time. I don't know the, the record, but I guess for the first time, he was suspecting that his landlady was reusing the food out of their plates in the next days or a few days later food. And he tried to uh, to talk to her and say, hey, how about you, you use some fresh food for a change? And she <laughs> denied it, of course. Um, And then he had this idea. He just grabbed his leftover meat. He put a little bit of radioactive material in it. And then he went the next day with a detector that could detect this radioactivity. And he, of course, found radioactive soup or something, and he could prove it. Um, Wow. I love that story. I love that story. (laughs) Because that really kind of brings science home for people. We understand about that. And do you think a lot of science is like that, Dr. Spear, is that we hear the complicated 
complicated stuff, but we don't really fully understand. This has everyday uses for us. Yeah, and uh, I think that's uh, that's important to to make that connection to from from the discovery to the application. And sometimes it's hard because sometimes it takes years from when something is discovered to actually use it in everyday life. This particular one was a little more direct. That's why uh, we're we're talking about it, and it's a fun story to talk about because it's it's completely direct. But sometimes a discovery might take decades to actually figure out a way to use it to improve our lives. So when you see the Nobel Prize winners, do you recognize the work? Do you think, oh, I've heard about that? Like this is significant work that you know will have an impact. Yes, sometimes if it's close to my field, I can uh, recognize immediately that, yeah, this this is promising. Or sometimes for the Nobel winners, the discoveries were done years ago, and now they are recognized. And already, you know, our society move fast, moves fast, and uh, we are always trying to make use of these discoveries. So some of the discoveries at the time of the Nobel Prize are already being used. Right. Now, you work at the facility for rare isotope beams. What is that? What do you do? Yeah, so the I mentioned radioisotopes that the Hevesy was using back then. So those typically are things that they could find, find naturally. Um, what we do here, uh, we call it AFRIB. Uh, we, what we do here is we try to produce new uh, of those radioisotopes. And some of them are radioisotopes that... Uh, we're we're discovering them right here. They have never been observed before. And some of them live for a very short time. Maybe it's a fraction of a second. And so that's more for pure science, uh, just understanding the the nuclear physics of it. And um, sometimes these isotopes, we know that they're present in stars and we're trying to understand how stars work. But some of these radioisotopes are the things that are useful for our for our daily applications, uh, but it's hard to produce in any other way. So we have, for example, radiochemists here in the building that will take um, these radioisotopes, separate them out and isolate them, and then we can use them for medical applications or other applications. So we do a little bit of everything with these rare radioactive isotopes. That sounds fascinating. How do you even track something that you said exists sometimes for less than a second? So the you have to have specialized devices that are, that work very fast. So our devices can detect things at a very small fraction of a second, a billionth of a second, and we can know that oh, this isotope it decayed, it emitted this kind of radiation, this kind of particle. We can detect it and uh, and learn about it. That is fascinating. Your work's amazing. Uh, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Oh, yeah. Thank you very much. That is Dr. Artemis Spiru, Professor of Physics at the Facility for Rare Isotope Beams at Michigan State University. We're talking about Nobel Prizes. Like, you see the headlines and you're like, oh, well, that sounds like an interesting discovery. Like, quantum dots. What are those? Turns out they're nanoparticles that are so small that scientists didn't even know they existed until this discovery was made. And so it takes time for us sometimes to realize the impact of it. And I love the story from 19, the 1943 Nobel Prize chemistry winner, too. This is Mornings with Simi. Uh, we're going to talk about what's going on in B.C. politics. The legislature resumes next week. Is that right? The legislature is back next week. So the fall session began with uh, three days last week. Then they're on break uh, for the Thanksgiving holiday. And then they're back next week. And 
I guess the first question, open question, is how will the legislature respond, have its say around, uh, well, let's see, murder, rape, kidnapping, violence in the Middle East, particularly involving Hamas. The BC United, um, Simi has written a letter to the speaker suggesting an emergency debate. So that's where they take an hour out of the daily schedule and members can get up and speak, uh, speak their minds on it. The government has come back with, uh, we don't think that's necessary. Why don't we just do ministerial statements? So that's where a representative of each of the four main parties will get up and speak for about five, 10 minutes. So more time set aside in the BC United proposal than in the government proposal. Both sides are at least open to having some discussion on it in the House, but the political implications might be a little bit different depending on which format they choose. It's been really interesting, actually, seeing the responses from different politicians and in some cases would-be politicians too, hasn't it? Yes, it has. Although I will say that a lot of the coverage of people getting really out of hand and, quote, celebrating what Hamas did, a lot of that, well, there's been, you know, protests in the streets here in British Columbia, not big ones. Um, And back east, uh, we've had some academics, professors saying, to me, outrageous things, but anyway, they've been saying it. Um, celebrating Hamas, uh, providing, quote, context, as if there's ever context for, as I say, murder, rape, and kidnapping, hostage-taking, but anyway. And some trade union stuff, but again, back east, uh, the most uh, prominent comments were from QP. QP is a union here, but the QP leaders who've been speaking out on this are back in Ontario. So um, I, I guess the opposition... Um, BC United and the BC Conservatives um, maybe see a bit of a wedge issue here if they can get an entire hour-long debate on this. But the New Democrats here have been pretty careful. Uh, Premier David Eby condemned Hamas at the outset. He did not initially uh, defend Israel's right to defend itself, but he did condemn it. And the New Democrats have left, Simi, most of the comments on this to Selena Robinson, She is Jewish. Uh, She has been eloquent and outspoken on this. And although I've not seen the memo, my guess is that the Premier's office here advised NDP MLAs to leave the talking to Robinson to not, on social media, talk themselves into the kind of uh, things you have to back down and apologize for that we've seen elsewhere. Um, Angela Apatarai, you remember her a year ago, she I do. was running for the leadership of the NDP against David Eby and uh, getting a fair amount of attention. She did in her initial statement on social media, call for an end of the occupation by the apartheid state Israel. And her second posting said, but yeah, don't misunderstand me. I don't approve of what Hamas did. So and the Green leader, Sonia Firstenau, it took her two postings on social media to condemn Hamas as a terrorist organization. Uh, there's a lot of detail on what we're talking about, Simi, if people want to see more on it. 
Our friend and colleague, Rob Shaw, has a piece in Business in Vancouver, uh, The Orca. It's posted online, and uh, Shaw really did his homework on this one, so he's got a lot of detail on this. But for the emergency debate versus ministerial statement uh, next week, it, the ruling on an emergency debate, Simi, is up to the speaker. We do get those once in a while, but probably not likely will the speaker approve an emergency debate without support from all parties in the House. And at the moment, the New Democrats would sooner just one speech from each side, uh, briefer, and move on. Right. So we still don't know exactly what this is going to look like then. No, we don't. But I, I think, you know, they are all on the same page to the extent of they think it's appropriate that something is said in the BC legislature. And I think that's a good thing. Um, you know, as I said, we've seen very, to me, forthright leadership by the mayor of Vancouver, um, the city of Vancouver. Uh, there was, even though it was raining, uh, looked to me like there was fairly good attendance at the pro-Israel rally in uh, Vancouver. So, you know, I, as I said, I there's certainly a controversy right across the country on this one, but you don't see too many issues where the Prime Minister and Pierre Polyev appear to be on pretty much the same page. And for the most part, they were. All four of our political parties are now on record publicly as condemning Hamas as a terrorist organization. So given some of the divisions, including divisions elsewhere in Canada and in the Western world, British Columbia has conducted itself. Our politicians are, have conducted themselves fairly well on this issue, in my view. Ron Palmer from the Vancouver Sun is back with <laughs> us this morning. Uh, all right, let's talk about BC Hydro, which is, I feel, timely because I got my BC Hydro bill this morning. Well, BC Hydro, and BC Hydro is independently regulated, as is ICBC, by the BC Utilities Commission. And in opposition, the New Democrats defended the independence of BCUC every time the party then known as the BC Liberals used to interfere in it. But it will be a familiar uh, storyline to the listener that when opposition parties become government, they lose their patience, they don't much like independence, and the New Democrats have started interfering in the commission. Last year, they ordered the commission to approve a rebate for ICBC. They ordered it to approve, without any further scrutiny, a credit from BC Hydro. And then a month ago, we had uh, an extraordinary act of political interference. Simi, the government stepped in and fired David Morton, the longtime chair, dozen years, and commissioner at the BC Utilities Commission. They fired him. They gave no explanation for it, although one likes the irony. They thanked him for his years of service, and they appointed Mark Jackard as his replacement. Jackard is a prof at Simon Fraser University, Simi. He is also, uh, was chair of the commission in the last time the NDP was in government in the 90s. And the New Democrats didn't say much about why they picked him either, but this week, Energy Minister uh, Josie Osborne posted a letter of expectations to Jackard, saying what the government expects from their new chair of the Utilities Commission. Now, it's all cloaked, Simi, in the language of independence. We look forward to working with you. But 
when you're getting a letter from the bunch that fired your predecessor, uh, this probably qualifies as a pretty strong hint about what the government is actually expecting from the new chair, Mark Jackard, and the new commission. Okay, so then what can we expect, do you think? Yeah, so as I said, they gave no reason for the firing, but David Eby has been complaining. He's not a patient premier, and he's been complaining this year that it takes way too long to get clean energy projects approved in British Columbia. So BC Hydro is going to come up with a clean energy project or transmission line. It takes eight to 10 years for them to go through hydro's planning process, environmental review, local opposition, consultation with the Indigenous community, and approval by the Utilities Commission. So uh, the Premier's right, it does take a long time, and it's clear from the letter to the new chair of the commission that this is part of David Eby's desire to get stuff moving at the commission. So um, the, the government's saying, we look forward to working with you on expediting approval of energy projects and bringing the commission's uh, policies and regulations, quote, in line with NDP government objectives. That may not sound as all that independent to you, Simi, but that's where they're going. <laughs> and the rhetoric of we, we want to work with you. Uh, you, you read down in the letter and they go, oh, and by the way, we're planning to bring in legislation to change all this too. So in the event that uh, Jackard isn't quick enough to work with the government and be sympathetic to uh, NDP objectives, uh, they're holding in reserve. They're going to change the legislation to basically tell the commission what to do anyway. So I got some time for Jackard Simi. Uh, he's been around a long time. He's very knowledgeable on energy matters. He's written several books about it, energy economics. Uh, he helped Gordon Campbell put together the climate action plan under the BC Liberals. So he's not uh, somebody who is reluctant to work with the other side. Uh, he criticized the NDP in the 19, in, um, in 2009 election, criticized the NDP for uh, their opposition to the carbon tax. So he is independent-minded, I would say, but he's got his work cut out for him on this one, Simi. He's going to have to prove, I think, publicly that he is capable of resisting what the NDP wants to do when he thinks maybe they're not on the right track on some issues. I think he has to demonstrate the commission right. is still independence because clearly, independent, because clearly... The New Democrats don't much respect the independence of the commission. But this also clearly tells us that I think there is some concern in the NDP government that they need more power. They need more projects. They do. And, you know, they have a point that it does take a long time to get stuff done in British Columbia. But the reasons why it takes a long time to get projects approved here is is written into our political history. You know, the in, the Utilities Commission, Simi, was set up because way back in the Socred days, if the Socreds wanted a hydroelectric dam, they just snapped their fingers and BC Hydro started building it and damming some valley. Um, indigenous consultation is something written into law by the Supreme Court of Canada. There's no getting away from it. It can take a long time. There are a lot of indigenous nations in British Columbia. They have different interests. They lack resources. Environmental review. Our environmental legislation is tough, and the New Democrats have toughened it. So, you know, I, I, Gordon Campbell finally got so exasperated with this process that he passed a law just saying all this stuff has to go ahead. 
and included in it was Site C, and included in it was smart meters. So that was Campbell's way of dealing with it, just legislated into existence, bypass everything. Um, the New Democrats condemned that. So, you know, as I said, I, I think the premier has a point when he says it takes too long to approve stuff here in B.C., but the New Democrats have also been great defenders of due process. So if they're going to start ramrodding approval of projects, they're running against their own stated policies over the years and their own preference for due process. Mm, so interesting. All right, Vaughn, thank you. Bye-bye, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. I would say these days we all need a reason for some hope, don't we? It does feel like there's a lot of hopelessness out there in the world. But there is some hope to talk about, actually, in the area of dealing with ALS. So BC, UBC, and the ALS Society of BC have all teamed up, and they have successfully raised more than $5 million. And with that money, they're establishing something uh, like a, a professorship professorship at UBC as part of something called Project Hope. We want to learn more about this because this is very significant. It can really make a difference for dealing with ALS. Dr. Eric Piero joins us now, professor of neurology at the UBC Department of Medicine, uh, lead of the ALS Society of BC's Project Hope. Dr. Piero, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, thanks very much for having me, Simi. It's my pleasure. Now, first off, it, maybe you could tell people what is ALS exactly? Well, ALS is the most common adult motor neuron disease, and that is a, a disorder that results in degeneration of primarily motor cells. So in other words, the nerves that control our voluntary muscles. Those aren't the only sort of cells that get affected. However, we've learned that in ALS, there are other types of nerve cells that get um, affected and degenerate, including those that are responsible for our cognition, our kind of memory, our thinking, our behavior. So ALS is not only a motor neuron disease that results in progressive loss of muscle control and muscle function, but it can also affect cognition, the way that we think, the way that we behave as well. It used to be a big mystery though, didn't it? And that sounds even from the way you're describing it is that we've learned so much more about ALS. It's it's true. I mean, it still really is a mystery ever since it was first described in the uh, late 1800s by Charcot. Um, it's it's really still, you know, a, a major puzzle. What is the actual cause of ALS? And we're we're learning that there are many different forms of ALS. Um, there are some that that are inherited. In other words, there are genetic causes. And we've been learning the most in the ALS field from these genetic forms of ALS and discovering genes that cause ALS. But the vast majority of ALS is sporadic. In other words, it happens without any known um, you know, reason that we can identify. And that makes up probably around 85 or 90% of all ALS, so the vast majority. We really have no idea what's causing the disease. Now, for sure, we've learned a lot, as, as you mentioned, um, that, that there's probably a lot of things going on in our own genetic makeup, in addition to things that happen in the environment that affect us, that are, you know, causes together uh, that result in ALS. So this announcement then of an endowed kind of professorship at UBC to deal with this, how important and significant is this? Well, I think it's it's hugely important because you know there's been a real need for um, a, a kind of a coordinated effort to lead 
um, the development of clinical trials in ALS in the province of BC so that persons living with, with ALS in BC don't have to travel out of the province to participate in clinical trials where we are able to discover novel treatments for this disease. So that's one of the major advantages of having this program uh, in place with Project HOPE is to allow patients with ALS to have access to clinical trials in addition to develop and build upon the, you know, the ALS research legacy that had been and has been going on at UBC. Uh, so it's a combination of, of all those efforts. And how much, like there have been strides I know that have been made in terms of ALS research, particularly in the last 10 years, hasn't there? There really has. Um, and I think, you know, as I was mentioning that it's primarily because of the genetic um, background of, of ALS and understanding how the how certain genes can result in the disease. But in addition, there's been a lot of interest uh, from pharmaceutical companies in studying ways of stopping ALS in discovering novel drugs. So there have been major advances in, in identifying novel treatments uh, for ALS. And we now have three drugs that have been approved uh, to slow down the progression of ALS that are specifically for patients uh, that have sporadic ALS. And one uh, that was approved in the United States, uh, I don't believe it's been approved in Canada yet, uh, but is, that is specific for one of the genetic forms of ALS. Now, that's amazing because, you know, even five, 10 years ago, the thought of having any kind of medication seemed unreachable. That's right. That's right. No, we, we've really, you know, started to change the game uh, when it comes to things that we can do for uh, persons living with ALS that that it's even though it still is a fatal disease and we haven't found a way to stop it, unfortunately, uh, we have found ways now of slowing it down. And so together with the, the care that's provided in multidisciplinary clinics, we can really make advances in enhancing uh, individuals' quality of life and extending their survival with these therapies. How much did the Ice Bucket Challenge play a role in all of this? Because that really brought the whole idea of research and money, right, to the forefront. Yeah, no, that's true. I think it really, you know, raised the awareness of, of ALS worldwide. A lot of people who had no idea what ALS was started to recognize it, you know, just from the Ice Bucket Challenge. And sometimes they were participating without really knowing what they were doing. But but still, it was an educational, uh, you know, effort and, and benefit. And, and it, it raised uh, a lot of funds, as you said, for uh, advancing these, these research efforts, a lot of them being in the genetic area. And the reason that I mention and, and emphasize the genetic forms of ALS is that they probably have a lot of relevance to even those non-genetic or sporadic forms of ALS because the mechanisms will overlap. The reasons why these nerve cells degenerate and die is probably similar between a lot of the genetic forms and, and those that are not genetic. Right. How can we support this? So how do, what do we need to do to support this Project HOPE campaign? Well, I think, you know, raising awareness, spreading the news, talking to your friends, to your neighbors, to your loved ones, um, you know, letting them know that that ALS is a fatal disease for which we have no way of 
of stopping it, that it, it's, it devastates you know, families in addition to, to being a disease of the individual. It, it, it just is such a disease burden on uh, the family unit, the caregiving unit. And to, you know, advance the um, kind of the understanding that that this is a, an expensive disorder to, to have to deal with, um, not only from the research standpoint, I'm, you know, it's 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 very expensive to run clinical trials. Um, you know, there's there's so much uh, need for that kind of support to be able to provide uh, clinical care and, and uh, clinical trials for patients with ALS but also for the individual themselves to, to pay for equipment and various things that, that are needed. So it, it's very important to fundraise, uh, to, to kind of get the word out that, you know, providing support in any way that one can as a volunteer for the ALS Society of BC, but also to, to raise funds for this effort is extremely important and very valued. All right, well, we'll do the best that we can. Thank you so much for your time this morning. I appreciate it. Thank you, Simi. That's Dr. Eric Piora, who's a professor of neurology at the UBC Department of Medicine and lead of the ALS Society of BC's Project Hope. For more information on that, just go to alsbc.ca and see how you can make a difference. This is Mornings with Simi. So much of our housing these days feels tenuous, doesn't it? I mean, if you own a home, it's because mortgage rates are so high and you're worried about that. If you're renting, it's even finding a place. It's worrying about rent being increased even more beyond what you can afford. Our Scott Chance is here to talk more about that this morning. Hi. Hi, how are you? I'm good, thank you. I'm glad I'm not looking for a place to rent because I have incredible sympathy for people stuck in that situation. Oh my gosh. It's just like, that sounds like a nightmare, right? Trying to find a place to rent. And yeah, of course, one of the things that people do when they get into this situation is look for a roommate, you know, and whether they find them online or it's someone they know or whatever, it's just a thing that people do. You, You have to do it. But what happens when you get into a situation, you move into a place, you sign a tenancy agreement with a roommate and then that roommate wants to move out. This is one of these areas that has become kind of a gray area and caused some conflict and concern and uh, definitely sounds like it needs to be addressed. So I got in touch with Hunter Boucher. He's the vice president of operations for Landlord BC. They're an advocacy group that sort of argues on behalf of landlords, you know, because we've talked about landlords' rights in this conversation as well. So I wanted to ask him what actually happens in these situations when one roommate wants to move out. Yeah, well, if the person who's leaving gives notice to end tenancy, uh, that would effectively end the entire tenancy. From there, it's up to the the other people in the, in the property, if they're wanting to stay, to talk to the landlord, to, to negotiate that. Let's say that I had a roommate and we were renting a place for $2,000 a month. The roommate moves out and I want to stay in that place. Now the previous lease is voided and it's on me to talk to the landlord and sign a new lease. Is that correct? That is correct, yes. Okay, so that would but that means now that the landlord could increase the rent, say from two thousand to three thousand or twenty five hundred, they because it's a new lease, right? At the end of the day, yes. The the the, the reality is that it is a completely new residential tenancy that's being entered into. Uh, in a new situation, um, and with with that in mind, the the rent certainly 
can change. Okay. Do you think that there is a danger of landlords taking advantage of situations like this? Because in in often cases, those rental increases are more than the province allows as an annual increase for current tenants. Well, I think that what needs to be looked at here is kind of, first of all, the fundamentals behind what, why this exists in the first place. And, the, and really it comes down to allowing tenants to try to mitigate their loss when it comes to ending a tenancy. If we couldn't come to an actual end of tenancy in this situation, then they would be remain on uh, on the hook, as it were, uh, for that tenancy. So really what, what, what we're, we're having a conversation about is, is the fact that landlords are, are put in a situation where a tenant is leaving, which means that that situation they entered into originally is ending. Uh, so from then on, it's a completely brand new tenancy. And that is a risk when renting with multiple people, that that might happen, that your roommate might leave. And, and if your roommate leaves, it might mean an end of tenancy. That's something that you need to be very aware of when entering that type of, of housing situation. And have you seen situations like this where uh, landlords have, have, in some cases, lost out? Maybe talk to me a little bit more about what the mm-hmm. risk is to landlords in this scenario. And I just, I'll, I'll be transparent. I am a landlord. I have a, a suite in my house. It's one of the ways that I, like so many people, make ends meet in the lower mainland is by having a situation yeah. like this. But talk to me about what, the, what you see as the risk to landlords here. Uh, well, I mean, the risk to, to landlords really comes down to not having the ability to control the type of tenancy and the situation, the, the, the makeup of the tenancy that they're entering into. So when that tenancy ends, because uh, one of the roommates has given notice to end the tenancy and leave, it now basically starts everything fresh. It's a chance to renegotiate on, on all parties, similar to, to when a you know, vacancy is, is, is posted. It's the same thing. Um, so not having that ability to, to do that, to, to negotiate that, essentially puts, well, would put landlords in a situation where they're not really in control over the, 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 the type of tenancy that they're, they're entering into, which I think is a really key, and I think most of us can agree, is a key part of, of renting out a property is having that, that ability to control the type of tenancy that you're entering into. Um, without that confidence that you, you have that ability, uh, I think that a lot of people would probably reconsider renting out their property. Yeah, and I think that what you're touching on there is a big issue in the Lower Mainland. We've heard time and time again that there are lots of vacant rental properties, people who have suites in their house, secondary suites, that type of thing, and they don't rent them out because they feel there's not enough protection for the landlord, that they can get into some of these troublesome situations with troublesome tenants, and they don't feel they have the power to, like you say, to control that situation, to evict tenants if they feel necessary. But in this circumstance, what I find interesting is, like I do, it's kind of like a middle area, right? Because one tenant has moved out, but say you've had great tenants in there for five years, one of those two great tenants wants to stay on. And I think that there's a worry that this could sort of void some of those tenants' rights. It's it's just a, a sticky sort of gray area. It feels like we maybe need some more clarity around the rules for these roommate situations, or at least a better understanding of how these contracts work. 
And I think that 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 second part here is, is a better understanding. People need to be very aware of the type of contract that they're entering into and the rights and responsibilities that everyone has in those situations. When you enter into a contract where there are two parties on one side, so two tenants uh, in these situations, you need to be really aware of what rights each party has in in these situations. Uh, and you know, are you are you have you entered into a situation where you're just renting a room, which is certainly a thing that is done, um, or are you renting a situation in a situation where you're renting an entire space with other people? And those two types of situations have very different impacts. That's Hunter Boucher. He's the vice president of operations at Landlord BC, and I just want to go on the record as saying. What he's talking about, it shouldn't just be on the tenants to be clear about what the contracts say here. I agree, because the tenant is desperate at that point for a place. And you can't sure. you can't say, well, they need to know what the rules are. No, no, no. They just desperately need a place Absolutely. to stay. There's no argument that the landlord has the, the more power in these situations, oh, especially yeah. here in the lower mainland. And I will say, I am going to speak uh, later on today with someone from the Tenant Resource Advocacy Center, as well as a person who has been in this very situation, been had a roommate evicted and what happened to her. So there's going to be more on this coming up. Right, because then at that point, if your roommate is out, do you have the right to say, I'm staying, I'll just get another roommate? Right, yeah, and that's that's what I'm saying, is this is this gray area that if a landlord doesn't want that, they need to be really clear from the beginning, or if a tenant does want that, they can put that in the contract from the beginning. Right, so any two-bedroom place, I guess, you should, if you're bringing in somebody else to live there, you should be clear about that in the beginning, how this is going to work. Yeah, and there's a there's a lot of like little sort of loopholes here. Are you renting just the bedroom? Are you sharing the space? Are you co-tenants, co-occupiers? Is Are the you lease on the in lease? One person's Are you name? on the totally. agreement? So much un- to unpack here. Oh boy, yeah. Okay, thank you very much for pointing that out. Yeah. It's even more complicated than we realized. Oh yeah, and more to come as well. All right, thank you for that. Scott, if you want to weigh in on that, like how do you deal with that situation, especially if you're a renter and you've had a roommate move out, what happens at that point? Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, the situation in Israel and Gaza remains critical this morning as hospitals now say they are facing a crisis in being able to provide medical care because of ongoing rocket attacks. And in the city of Tel Aviv, the situation is precarious. The airport remains open, but many airlines have stopped flying, the latest being British Airways. Now, evacuation flights bringing Canadians home are expected to get underway shortly uh, today, as a matter of fact. What about the people who live there or those who have decided to stay? What's it like for them? Well, Leah Herman is a Canadian living in Tel Aviv and joins us now. Leah, thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Leah, how is it there for you today? You know, Tel Aviv is really normally a bustling, live, vibrant city. And the last few days, the city's been just so quiet. Um, there's um, a feeling of of desperation in the city, if you know what I mean. Um, mm-hmm. Quite empty. Um, every day we sit at home, we wait for the sound of a uh, siren to run downstairs if there's a rocket. Um, but we are trying to get on with our days. I have been going to the grocery store. I go to my gym. But of course, never wearing headphones, walking as fast as I can to get there. So it's been quite intense. Uh, Leah, how did you first know that something had happened or that was there uh, when the rocket attacks were targeting Tel Aviv? When did you first become aware that something had gone wrong? 
so the first rocket was on Saturday morning and I actually woke up just to go to the bathroom and there's a text from my boyfriend asking if I was okay. And I was like, what are you talking about? And he was like, there were sirens. And then within another half an hour, obviously I couldn't fall back asleep. There was another siren. So we really have no warning when these things happen. Um, and then I opened up my social media and I saw all my friends posting, is everyone okay? What's going on? And since Saturday, this, this hasn't stopped. Where do you go? What do you do? Like, is there a, a protocol? Do you have a plan if there are rocket attacks? Like, do you have to think yeah. about that kind of stuff, right? Exactly. So there is an app that you can download called Homefront Command that will send you alerts the second that they're aware that a rocket is coming. And it'll tell you to start heading towards your shelter. Also, there will be really loud sirens. So they just ring and you're supposed to run out of your apartment, depending where you are in the country. In Tel Aviv, you have between 30 and 90 seconds to get to your shelter. Some parts of the country, you can have only 10 seconds to get to your shelter. So you basically run downstairs, you stay in the shelter until the alert on the app goes off and tells you you can go back upstairs. How far away is your designated shelter? Uh, my building actually doesn't have a shelter. And in that situation, we just stand in the stairwells, usually below the second floor, try to go as low as possible without being by the entrance where there's any glass. Um, but most buildings in Tel Aviv do have shelters in their basements. So people just need to run down the stairs as a lot of buildings are older, don't have elevators. Leah, have you considered coming back to Canada? Um, at this time, no. Um, all my friends are here. They've become my family. I have lived here for six years. So I don't feel that it's right that I get the opportunity to leave, but Israelis wouldn't have the opportunity to leave. So I'm going to stay here, uh, I guess, for now. And I haven't. don't think I'll be changing my mind. <laughs> Okay, that, I can appreciate that. What's it like for daily living? When you look around the city, is are people used to this? Because you said you've been there six years. Have you seen this before? Um, so it's, it is, it's not like it's funny, but it is crazy that um, Israelis seem to be used to this. You know, they've been used to the rocket attacks. I mean, of course, this time the situation is very, very different than it normally is. But um, when I go out to my, get my groceries, I see people walking their dogs, kids um, parents out on walks with their kids people in the grocery stores are in a good mood they're trying to you know keep a community feeling try to make people feel welcome so for me it is a little a little it gives me a lot of anxiety but I know for locals it seems just like a, a usual event I guess right have you talked to people in other parts of the country do you have friends elsewhere to find out what it's like for them too yeah so I, I, for sure the experience in Tel Aviv is a lot lot different than it is in the south in the south of Tel Aviv, a lot of people are having to evacuate their homes because um, obviously on Saturday, Hamas did get into the country and cross the borders and were brutally attacking the towns in the south. So people have fled, staying with friends, staying with family. I know hotels are opening their doors for people. People that are out of town are giving um, random strangers access to live in their homes just to be in the safer part of the country. So uh, it's scary, though, right? Leah? Could you ever imagine going through something like this when you moved there six years ago? No, it definitely was was never on my mind, and for, it is definitely an scary experience. I do feel very lucky that I live in Tel Aviv, which is not facing the horrors of what the rest of the country is experiencing. It does feel a lot calmer than I know it is in the south, but definitely something I, I never expected to experience. Do you change your preparation yeah. for this? Like, do you? Do you have supplies laid in? Like, do you think about things that you never thought about before now? A hundred percent. I mean, I, I definitely keep my door locked all the time. And every time I, I hear a noise that may be similar to a siren, my heart does, you know, skip a beat. Um, and um, I have created a little prepare a pack 
with um, a battery charger, a flashlight, some clothes, just some snacks, just in case. They do say that I need to go down to the um, shelter and I won't be coming up anytime soon. You know, if other countries do involve themselves in this war from the surrounding areas, it, it could be more intense because um, they have stronger military, stronger armies than Gaza does. And we, we don't know what can happen. Right. But you're committed to staying for now. I am. I have I have my cats. I have my boyfriend. I have my friends and all my friends. We all have friends who have also been sent back into the military. And I just feel like six years I've enjoyed the good life of Israel. And I don't want to just run because times are bad. I know that might sound crazy, but that's just how I'm feeling right now. Malia, thank you so much for your honesty and, and good luck. Thank you so much. Have a great day. This is Mornings with Simi. Can we build more housing by streamlining the process at City Hall? Can something called village development help us find housing? And what is that? These are all questions that have been brought up following the announcement yesterday by Vancouver Mayor Ken Sim and his ABC majority on council that they are proposing a a host of changes aimed at getting more housing built in the city. So let's find out what's going to happen. Ken Sim, the mayor of Vancouver, joins us now. Thank you for being here. Hey, Simi. Thanks for uh, having me today. So what are you proposing to do about that? What is what is going to happen here? Wow. Well, we we launched a bunch of different things. That, that's a big question, by the way. Um, we, we've already initiated a bunch of uh, uh, things like uh, bringing BRT uh, to uh, Hastings Sunrise area, uh, more child care, student housing, uh, dealing with view cones. Uh, that's already in the works. In addition to that, we brought on seven different uh, proposals that we're going to um, bring to council next week. So, um, you know, building, uh, you know, up uh, 26 different sort of village areas using technology to help us with our shadow guidelines to speed up the process, um, more flexibility with uh, um, sort of design of buildings to make it easier to build faster, uh, having a little more enforcement on illegal short-term rentals, working with the province there, having certified professionals who can actually help process uh, applications so we can um, get uh, housing built faster, uh, building more densely, uh, uh, using our infrastructure at SkyTrain stations. We have at least four stations that have basically no density around them. And then reviewing uh, building bylaws, seeing where we can you know, uh, streamline the process and get rid of a lot of uh, extraneous uh, bylaws that just don't make any sense. Okay, you're right. That's uh, a lot. Name a few. Yeah, that's a lot. Okay, oh, so yeah. let's start with a couple of things that you mentioned there. Uh, more flexibility with the design of buildings. What does that mean? Uh, it, look, I, I don't want to get super technical here, but uh, one thing is uh, we have building floor plates, and I think they're about 65, the max is about 6,500 square feet, and it really restricts what you can build, and so we want to increase that to about 8,500 square feet, so, um, you know, it provides a lot more flexibility in how we build and what we can build, and to give you some context, I think Toronto is at about 9,500 square feet for these floor plates, so just making it easier to build is, uh, you know, is the purpose behind that one. When you say buildings, is that in residential areas? Is that in commercial areas? Are we talking about being able to build larger buildings on residential lots? We're talking about a whole host of things. And so uh, it I can't answer that with a simple, broad statement. Um, what I can say is, you know, using our existing infrastructure around SkyTrain stations, it just makes sense to build more because we want to utilize the infrastructure. We want people to be able to travel uh, throughout the city more effectively without having to use cars. We want to create 
uh, vibrant neighborhoods around those uh, SkyTrain stations. So that would be a place where it makes more sense to densify. When we talk about our 26 villages, that's uh, those are areas where, you know, we will still be promoting building single-family homes, townhomes, multiplexes, and three to six stories, uh, as an example. So we want to build a whole lot of everything um, throughout our neighbourhoods while also respecting, you know, uh, what makes Vancouver special and the neighbourhood feel and, you know, uh, a way where we can still enjoy incredible views of the mountains and the oceans as well. Is there an example that you have? I know you mentioned Burnaby yesterday in the discussion. Like, are there areas that you say, we'd like to do more of that? Yeah, you know, Burnaby is a great example, and it, it, that example works around the SkyTrain stations. It makes sense to copy what they're doing. I, I, you know, I hate to give Mike Hurley all the credit here, but let's let's give credit where credit's due. They, they've done a great job there, and so when I when I look at King Edward and Camby. I personally, it's my opinion, I find it completely ridiculous that we have a six or seven story uh, building on the northwest corner above uh, SkyTrain station. It's, you know, during a housing crisis, it it's just ridiculous. And we that's should, a relatively it, new building, right? I mean, I remember when that yeah. was built. <laughs> yeah, it, it it's, you know, that, that's my opinion. I just think it's ridiculous. And what a wasted opportunity. And so we have Four SkyTrain stations, uh, you know, and people can make an argument there's more, but you look at Nanaimo Station, you look at 29th Avenue, you look at Renfrew, you look at Rupert, you know, we have single-family homes all around those areas. And so if we want to get serious about providing more housing for future generations and, you know, people who want to live here today, we have to think differently and we have to, you know, utilize our current infrastructure um, and build around it. So that's one aspect of this, but I'm sure there's a lot of developers and builders who would say, listen, we would love to propose it, but getting it through City Hall is a challenge. What about the process? Uh, and they are absolutely right. Now, we've made some headway, but there there's a lot more that we can do, and we're already doing. So behind the scenes, um, I know that our amazing team at the City, uh, they've been working really hard, uh, you know, lifting up the hood, and they've looked at uh, bylaws and guidelines and ineffective previous uh, directions from, um, you know, uh, other councils. Uh, And that's not a judgmental uh, comment. That's just, you know, it is, uh, you know, there's some things that just didn't work. And so they've already identified hundreds of um, bylaws and redundancies and uh, things that just don't make sense that they're going to propose that we get rid of. And so um, that right there will speed up the process. Also looking at certified professionals um, to, you know, review things. Uh, so the city of Vancouver isn't a bottleneck. Um, Where know, everything has to get checked, like, right? Where every question you have, you have to go to the city. Yeah, like we, we want to streamline it so you don't have to. Like, it, you know, it, we're not talking about rocket science here. Like, obviously, some special projects uh, need a lot of lifting. But when we're talking about standardized builds, why are we slowing down the process? These things should be, you know, approved almost immediately if we already know that it fits and it conforms with what we want to build in the neighborhoods that we want to build. Why, re- why does it take nine months to 12 years to build something like that or approve it? Okay, and let's. I wanted to ask you about the crackdown on short-term rentals that you mentioned there too. This has been a huge issue, and there, there's definitely a lot of anecdotal stories and evidence out there that there are people without licenses operating these or expired licenses, and there isn't the, enough enforcement. What happens as a result of that? Yeah, so like I, I, I want to give both sides of the story here. There are short-term rentals that work. 
um, that people are following the rules and it's you know it's it's a positive not only to the tourist economy but uh, people that are looking for mortgage helpers what have you okay there are also a lot of people that are not following the rules and we're we want to crack down on that because at the end of the day we are in a housing crisis um, there are a lot of people who want to live in the city of Vancouver and um, you know they're being excluded from that because, you know, in part due to uh, people that aren't following the rules. So um, we've already made a stand there and we want to work with the, the province uh, to enforce, um, you know, the regulations that they're going to be proposing. Okay, so do you think that in that case, there's there's a lot of people who become reliant on this uh, and they just, it, it, they're going to need to crack down on this because um, they're, they're, that's rental stock, right? Like people could be renting that out long term. Yeah, look, it, uh, my my view is if you follow the rules, you won't have a problem. If you don't follow the room, rules, there's a problem. And uh, so we want to crack down on the people that aren't following the rules so we can get people who want to live in the city of Vancouver, um, you know, more options. Right, you've said now, that's that... That's not going to solve everything. That's just yeah. one part of it. Like, if that's all we rely on, uh, cracking down on illegal short-term rentals, we're not going to solve, you know, the housing crisis here. So right. we have to focus on the big picture as well. You said you're waiting for the province to do more on that. What kind of tools will the province give you, do you think, that might be able to help with that? Uh, you know, that's a great question for the province, um, but we want as many tools as possible. Um, and not not just on short-term rentals. Look, we, we uh, the part uh, the province has, uh, they've been great partners uh, with us uh, or for us, and um, they've been giving a lot, uh, us a lot of assistance on the housing file, and we, we look forward to that relationship uh, continuing um, going forward. When do you think people will start to notice some of these changes? When will it make you a know, difference? Um, you know, and that's a great question. Uh, there are no short-term fixes. Uh, these are all sort of medium to long-term um, things that we need to do. I think if you are a home builder or developer, you will start to see um, these changes sooner, not later. But then it takes time to build these places. And so we take the view that we need to get to work right now to clear the logjam so people can build. And frankly, I like, and I only, I speak for myself and I think I speak, actually I know I speak for council as well. We don't care who gets credit for this, right? So when you start to see positive impact in the future um, and someone else gets credit for it, awesome, who cares? At the end of the day, we wanna set in motion um, you know, a positive structure so people and builders can build the homes that Vancouverites need. Do you envision moving more of that online? I noticed that you also launched the kind of um, laneway house tool online where you can do your checklist and everything by inputting at the city website, which is like a little thing, but also a very big thing. Yeah, you know, we want to push as, uh, you know, uh, as many processes online as possible, but we also have to make sure that we have the right workflow. Right. Like so if you if we had a process that didn't make any sense that you had to go through 27 different steps, uh, just putting that process online doesn't help anyone. Um, You know, uh, the bigger thing is how do we eliminate those redundant 27 steps? So you don't even have to go through that process in the first place. Um, But for all the processes that make sense, yeah, let's push them online and um, make it easier for um, uh, all the people that are building homes. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time this morning.
Great. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Appreciate that. That's Ken Sim, Mayor of Vancouver, talking about a whole host of proposed changes at this point to get things moving and more things built. Now, I'm sure, you know, when you talk about these village developments, especially around SkyTrain stations like Nanaimo, 29th Avenue, the residents in those areas would go, oh, do, I, do I want it to look more like what we see in Burnaby around SkyTrain stations? That's going to be, I think, part of that discussion too. But it sounds like there are plans to move those things forward. 